Let us pray. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that thy people, illumined by thy word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. Uh, as you're coming in, grab a sheet from the deaconess. Uh, you should have a Bible text with you. Let's just, let's just dive right in. As you, uh, hopefully you notice there's a common theme through all of this. Um, if not, then maybe I've not been too clear. But there is a common theme and a place we're trying to go. Um, as you remember, you know, Galatians is incorporation and James is participation. But both of those, hopefully you've seen, are gospel words. Uh, it's an invitation both into the person of Christ, Galatians, and an invitation uh, to have some fun within the body of Christ. So continuing on then, look at your outline. Number one, again this week, and this will, you know, you can just say, again for the rest of your life. Let's be sure to keep this front and center. Jesus does the verbs. Okay? Jesus does the verbs. All the good that's done in your life is done first by Jesus. Even, as we saw last week, even the question of whether or not you believe. Remember Luther in the third article says, I believe I cannot believe, or I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit does the verbs, and if the Holy Spirit's doing the verbs, so is Jesus, and if Jesus is doing the verbs, so is the Father. Um, there's no separation of action within the Trinity. So again this week, let's be sure to keep this front and center. Jesus does the verbs, and so this also. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. And so this as well, Jesus does his verbs in and through us. Remember, I'm a very linear thinker. Did you guys pick that up? It wasn't a real chuckle there, but... <laughs> yeah, Val. Christ lives in you. You live in your flesh. Therefore, Christ lives in your flesh. Okay? So as we, at, we begged the question last week, would Jesus cease to exist if he couldn't exist in you? The Lord's always been a Lutheran. Always been a Lutheran. said that in a sermon once and no one laughed there either, but <laughs> I make up for it here. Jesus has always been a Lutheran. He's always worked by means. And guess what? It's not just bread and wine. It's not just the water at the font. It's not just the word of the pastor from the pulpit and the confessional. You are actually a means of grace which is a radically different way of thinking about the Christian life. You don't, you don't exist merely to be a forgiven Christian. You exist to be a means of grace. Jesus is doing his work through you. Or we talked about Kavanaugh last week. You know, God does the world the way that the world needs to be done. That's just a fancy way of saying Jesus loves you the way that you need to be loved. And he loves his creation through you. And so from last week, Letting Jesus do his living and verbing in and through us reminds us who we truly are. Remember St. Uh, James says, it's like a man looking in a mirror. If all you do is hear and you don't do, you'll walk away from the mirror and forget who you are. And it keeps us in the one true faith or true religion. This is great here from James chapter 1. If you've got the Bible, you know, the text in front of you, uh, you should have it up on, uh, above the line. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue 
but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. If you don't stop talking, eventually you have to stop talking and start doing it. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is the gospel. Okay? You visit the orphans and the widows because Jesus is hiding in them. When did we see you, Lord? If you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. But strangely, in this whole endeavor to uh, at least get a handle on the Christian life, we're not alone, okay? So this is from Christianity Today. Just let me read this to you and just, just listen. See how, this, see how this rubs you. Our world today cries out for a theology of spiritual growth. Now, we might call it something else, but you get what he's trying to say. That has been proven to work in the midst of the harsh realities of daily life. Failing economy, church troubles, pick your, pick your problem. Sadly, many have simply given up on the possibility of growth and character formation. Still others have a practical theology that will not allow for spiritual growth. Indeed, they might just see it as a bad thing. Having been saved by grace, these people have become paralyzed by it. To attempt any progress in the spiritual life smacks of works righteousness to them. Their liturgies tell them they sin in word, thought, and deed daily, so they conclude that this is their fate until they die. Heaven is their only release from this world of sin and rebellion. And you remember, that goes right, that, that smacks in the face of everything N.T. Wright said. You know, heaven on earth is, is, there's a heaven on earth now. Hence, these well-meaning folks will sit in their pews year after year without realizing any movement forward in their life with God. Okay, just, just take that home and reflect upon that. But a few observations from what he's saying. I think it's very important to at least, I think he hits it right on the mark here. However, he's certainly not, he's not a Lutheran. Okay, so a few observations. There is no growth apart from Jesus, and so there is no growth apart from his sacramental gifts. That is what makes us uniquely Lutheran. So anyone that says, gosh, this sounds like works righteousness, you're right, it does. It's, it's works righteousness for Jesus. Jesus does the verbs. And Christ's sacramental gifts forgive us, but that is only the first word spoken to be forgiven, justification, or as St. Paul said in Galatians, rectification, is the first step toward living forgiven. The Lord having his way with us is the first step toward the Lord getting best possible use of us. That's a sermon from this morning, okay? He meets St. Peter's mother-in-law. He has his way with her. She's healed. And then he gets best possible use of her. He loves her the way that she needs to be loved, and she, in return, loves Jesus the way that he needs to be loved. And the way that Jesus needs to be loved is by serving his creation, so through you he can serve his creation as well. Forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't paralyze, it pushes. The sole reason that the Lord forgives you is to push you out towards something better. So an honest question, look at the next page. Is there a chance that we, too, may have been paralyzed by an overemphasis on salvation by grace? I'm just quoting the author of the, of the article. 
Yes, all theology and all pastoral care is specific. That's very important. There's no such thing as general pastoral care. There's no such thing as general theology. Theology and pastoral care are utterly specific. But is our problem today really that we think we're saved by our works? Now, that was certainly the problem at the time of the Reformation. No doubt about it. Call to the saints. In a sense, the call to the sacraments. It was all about what you did. And the Reformation um, gave some helpful medicine there. No, that's not what it's all about. It's about Jesus coming to you. The Reformation can be summed up in one thing. Jesus does the verbs. But is that still our problem today? Do you guys really go home and say, oh, I'm not doing enough because, uh, and, and I need to be because the Lord is saving me by my works. I don't think that's our problem. If it is, this would be a completely different Bible study. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is we say, uh, like James' congregation, thank God I'm saved by God's grace, period. And so remember, the liturgy. He cites the liturgy. He basically says you come in and learn that you're a damn sinner, and that's where you leave it. But remember, that's not the intention of the liturgy. The liturgy begins by wiping off your feet and singing Hail to the Chief, the Kyrie. Then it continues by praying and listening and confessing and praying again. But eventually we get to the eating, which naturally pushes us out to the doing. What's the first prayer you pray after you go to the Eucharist? Strengthen us in fervent love toward one another. Or as the Latin Mass ends, ite missa est. Go the mission, or literally, this is very important, go it is sent. What is sent? The body and blood of Christ. How is it sent? Through the people who just ate and drank. Okay? Strengthen us in fervent love toward one another. Go the mission. We've got some work to do. And any good work that is done is done first by Jesus. Good works are simply forgiven works meaning that Christ has had his way with them, and through them he is having his way with us. He is using us well. That's all good works are. And that's the primary distinction between a good work done by a non-Christian and the good works done by a Christian. Your works are forgiven works, because Jesus has had his way with them. Make sense? Everyone tracking? All right. With all of that, then, back to St. James. By the way, offering basket, Ghana, Westfield House, whatever. It'll go someplace, someplace helpful. My brothers, says James, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. Even James... This is fascinating. Even St. James, with all of his talk about hearing and doing and remembering who you are and embodying the presence of Christ through acts of mercy and love, even he won't let us think for a moment that it's about us. It's not about us. It's about Christ and the faith that he has and which he has given to us as a gift. In the Greek, James chapter 2, verse 1 the faith of Christ is a subjective genitive. We talked about that for weeks. Maybe St. Paul learned it from James. 
Now we have a Galatians scholar in the room, so I would hate to go on record saying anything, but maybe he learned it from James, or maybe James learned it from him. Who knows? We'll have to invite him back to give you a little exegetical work in a few weeks. Again, that was a joke. <laughs> oh, tough crowd. What's that? Yeah, exactly. Okay, all right. Once again, it's a subjective genitive. It's Christ's faith before it's your faith. Before James begins to describe how the Christian congregation is to look, he's going to get to that in just a second, he lets Jesus have the first word. From the very beginning, before he ever talks about you, he says, you have the faith of Christ. You have the faith of Christ. You have all that he is and all that he does, all of his utter faithfulness to his father and faith in his father's plan. You have that as a gift. So given all of that, says James, then if a man, is a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Essentially, in the Greek, it's, it's essentially like, um, you become my footstool. Okay? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, you need to think about this in our own context. And these are just things I've, I've observed or heard, or there could be more. There Maybe you'd disagree and think there are fewer. How often have we made our own St. John Wheaton distinctions, judging with evil thoughts, as St. James says? And remember, it's not always about money, though sometimes it is. But that is certainly what's troubling the congregation uh, to which James is writing. So you hear things, or you say things like, she's sitting in my spot. I've heard it. I said it to Nelson this morning, you're sitting in my spot. <laughs> I know what he did, and I can't believe that folks are being so nice to him. Those parents should get control of their kids. How young are we willing to commune children these days? New folks don't like the liturgy. We should just give them what they want, or worse, we should explain it as we do it. And the list could probably go on and on. But what James is trying to show them and what he's trying to show us is that the Christian church is precisely the place where there is to be no partiality, the place where everybody is in and nobody is out, the place where new folks get treated as old folks and old folks rejoice in new folks. That's the joy of the catechumenate. The place where every last person, yes, kids too, get all of Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and so should get all of us. We are one and the same with Jesus, are we not? Just think about how often that happens. Maybe not explicitly, but how often you've seen it or heard it or done it yourself. Made distinctions in the congregation. Judging folks with evil thoughts. But as you know, partiality divides. And division destroys. And anything that is destructive cannot be and is not of Jesus. If there are folks that are out to destroy people or out to destroy the church, it's very hard to remain an honest person, and it's even hard to remain a Christian. 
Because Jesus, by his very nature, is impartiality. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in the body of Christ. So James continues then. Listen, my beloved brothers. That's you. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who loved him, who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It's very important here, especially in this section of James. And I don't know how closely you read it. I presume some of you, maybe many of you, are going home and you read this on a regular basis or you prep for class a little bit. Um, but it's very important to tend the grammar. Oftentimes it doesn't come through in the English, but in this case it actually does. When the Lord was doing his choosing, Remember, he chooses the Jews, he chooses Mary, and he also chooses the poor ones, plural, lots of poor folks. He chooses them first, and he has promised, that's a very Lutheran way of speaking, they're not entitled to anything, you and I aren't entitled to anything at all, but he has promised to bless them. And you know that in the scriptures, promises, covenants are made with blood. So his promise is as good as his own blood. But strangely, James adds, you have dishonored the poor man, singular. Now, if he were consistent, he would have said, you have dishonored the poor ones, right? When the Lord was doing his choosing, he chooses poor folks. But instead, he speaks of a specific action in the past, something done before, done toward a specific person, a singular person, as he calls him, the poor man. So just who is this man of which James speaks. And I pose the question, and I don't, I don't know if it's actually true, but it's fun to think about. Could this be the same man from Psalm 1? Blessed is the man. In the Hebrew, it's gender-specific and emphatically masculine. I ruined my women's retreat lecture last spring. I'm, I'm much wiser after seven months. There are some things I will never, ever do again. Like when they say, come, do a come give a lecture at the women's retreat, and will you preach on Psalm 1? I won't lead by saying, well, this will ruin any good women's retreat. Um, because the man is emphatically masculine and gender specific. At that point, the women stopped listening. <laughs> Partly, I was assigned that text, so that wasn't my fault. But <clears throat> in any case, I've learned. Blessed is the man, gender-specific, emphatically masculine. He is a man's man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, what he rejoices in, is the Torah, the first five books of Moses, which you know are not primarily law, but gospel. It's the Lord's story of creation and Eden and the fall, but how he's trying to bring people back to Eden eventually. And on his Torah, he meditates day and night. Could this man of whom James speak actually, speaks actually be Jesus? And so you have David Scare there. We quoted him last week. This is, of course, the mystery of the incarnation and humiliation, that the Lord of glory, God himself, became also the poorest of men. And unless you understand that, 
that the incarnation is everything, that there is a cosmic event. Jesus breaks onto the scene through the word of an angel. It is a sacramental event. The word hits Mary's ear, and it changes her. It hits her ear and actually causes a little baby to be born in her womb. And that in that incarnation, even in Mary's womb, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is becoming everything we are and more. That's why Luther can say, on the cross, he's the chief sinner. He's the chief adulterer. He's the chief murderer. Pick your sin. You can't out-sin Jesus. Because Jesus is everything that you are and more, including the poorest of all men. So if it is that man, if it is Jesus of whom James speaks, then he is actually saying this, the Lord chose the poor to be his people, but in dishonoring them, you have dishonored his son, the man, Jesus Christ. If you look at the next page, the question is then, why? But why? Why is that what James is saying? I think, I would at least propose to you. It is because it is in the poor ones, the ones of low degree, the ones on the margins, the ones who cannot help themselves. I'm thinking particularly of children. The ones who have never stepped foot in this place. It is in them that the Lord is hiding. When did we see you hungry and naked and in prison and without food. When did we see you, Lord? You remember what he says? If you did it to the least of these, my brethren, those on the margins, those of low degree, you did it unto me. Perception is not reality. But remember, he's hiding in you as well. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. So if he is hiding in them... And if he is hiding in you, then these words of Jesus just might make sense. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because you and your neighbor are identical. They have Christ. They are one with Christ. You have Christ. You are one with Christ. To love your neighbor is to love yourself. Because you bear the same person. And that is, of course, how Jesus deals with us. He never asks us to do anything he's not willing to do himself. Okay, so if Jesus says, be obedient, don't say, Jesus, you don't do that, because frankly, he does, and he does it better than you and I do it. Jesus deals with us that way. He loves us as he loves himself. Remember St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul bears Christ, and then he says in Romans, we have been baptized into Christ. Christ bears us. We have Christ. Christ has us, we are identical. So then dishonoring the poor ones, anybody that you think is you know, distinct around here, whomever they may be in our context, really does two things. First and foremost, it dishonors Christ because he is hiding in them, he is the man. And it really dishonors ourselves Maybe you've never thought about it that way. In dishonoring someone else, you actually dishonor yourself because we are one with our neighbor as we bear the same person. They have Christ, so do you. 
There's no distinction. And so the question is, can we really be doing anything but loving them? Okay? Can we really be doing anything but loving them? That is what James is pushing us towards. And he'll go on to show you what that love looks like at the, you know, kind of the middle of chapter 2 when he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Why? Because God of his nature is mercy. He is not wrath. And if you can't find it in Jesus, you can't find it in yourself. That's why he said, look in the mirror. This all makes, this is so easy. This is, this is, I mean, James just runs you from the one thing to the next. And if you have the Pauline context, I've been baptized into Christ. I bear Christ in my body. It is no longer I who live, but Jesus who lives in me. If you have that context, this all becomes a gospel word. When you go home, the question should not be, have I done enough? Or am I in or am I out? That is not it, because that's the wrong question. The question is, what has Jesus done to me, forgiven me? What does Jesus do now? He lives in the world, bearing in his body the new creation, bearing in his body the Beatitudes, bearing in his body Eden plus. So since I live in him, what would he have me do? How might he get best possible use of me? Maybe it's to get up and make a pot of coffee, the sermon from this morning. Or maybe it's to care for the widows and the orphans. Or maybe it's to ask your pastors and we'll tell you what we might need you to do. Okay? Any questions? Everyone tracking? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, good. So the question, if you couldn't hear it, the question basically is, um, I actually, you know, when I, was, when, I, when I put the outline together, I, I knew where people would ask questions. That's not one area where I actually thought they'd ask questions. I won't tell you where I actually thought they'd ask questions, because then someone will ask the question. Um, the question is, in, in the first page, the liturgy section, you know, or, or third page maybe, where it talks about new members, give them what they want, or worse, um, explain it as you do it. Which is, you remember way back when Pastor Bruzek started, probably three or four months ago, um, one of the first points made was the way Jesus works, um, he works in terms of, as we would call it, primary theology as opposed to secondary. What he does on Sunday morning is very primary. Okay, so we don't get up and say, it just makes me cringe when I hear it. Let us now begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or let us join together in reciting the creed, the creed passed down from ages to ages, or let's all come to the altar. This is Jesus' body and blood. Won't this be fun? Okay? Because if you invite me to your house for dinner, 
I would be more uncomfortable if you said to me, you're a pastor, so you say to me, Josh. You'd say, and I'd say, Don, let's have a drink. I'd be more uncomfortable if you said, here's how our family works. In 12 minutes, Marnie's going to call us in, and she's going to say, the bread's over there and the bread's over there. Now, when you go in, you're going to want to pick up your fork and cut just like this, but be sure not to say anything because she really likes it if I say this prayer before we start. And then, I know you may have had one too many scotches before this already, but just be careful. Watch what you say because, you know, you're at our house and you need to do it this way and just be very careful. But the meal's going to be great. And along the way, I'll explain what the courses are and I'll explain to you how we made them and how you should cut it and how you should eat it. As opposed to saying, come to my house for dinner. And when I walk in, you treat me like family. Okay? Now, I think you, you probably, the work you do is, I mean, bless you. That's the work of the Beatitudes. But the work you do is a very different context, I think. Um, and I don't know if, I'm not saying it's, it shouldn't be primary in your place, or it shouldn't be secondary here. What I'm saying is, I think they're two totally different contexts, and it's very hard to compare those because they're not apples to apples. Yeah. Yeah, right. Sure, yeah, go right ahead, yeah. Okay. Well, we needed an extra tuba player. So I think, you know, <laughs> had they slid. No, I think, well, th those are, I think, I, I would hope those are very easy things to fix. It would have been nice if, um, if someone comes in like that. Um, you know, if someone sitting over here says, gosh, I can scoot down a little bit. Yeah, right, I know. That's exactly right. Yep. Because it's as much for them as it is for us. That's the whole point. No one's out and everybody's in. What else? Anything else? Yes.
Yeah. Well, I think the point of what James is saying is poor is not just in terms of money. I mean, here's the thing. If you don't think there's anyone in this room right now who's poor, and I don't mean financially, you haven't looked around lately. There are, there are a majority in this, people of ro this room right here are broken. And to say, you know, um, to say that there's no, there's no work to be done here Boy, that's a distinction in and of itself. And look around the room. I mean, imagine what's going on in, in the church and in the world. People are shattered. And the way to fix that is to go to the altar and leave the altar and actually be community. I mean, don't worry about building a house someplace. Why don't you just be nice to your neighbor? Not that, I mean, it's not, that's all the Eucharist does. Start there, then you can build houses. <laughs> But forgiveness is not the last word, it's the first. He forgives you to push you out and to bear in your body the presence of Christ. It's amazing to me the way people interact, and yet they can walk away and say, I'm a Christian, I bear Christ in my body. Yeah, you are, but you're a Christian on the margins. I mean, Christians who are, who are caught up in Christ's reality do not, they don't act that way to each other. It's very, it's very, it's a burden. Go ahead. I said, uh, yes, I said that the question is, you're not really against explaining the liturgy. I said to someone one time, I asked, I asked you to do this and you didn't do it, and this person said, well, I thought you meant something else. And I said, no, I say what I mean and mean what I say. So I, I don't think I ever said, don't explain the liturgy. I think what I said was, in the doing of it, just like when I have steak at Don's house, he wouldn't explain the doing of the steak. But yeah, there's, I mean, what, that's what we're doing right now. What I gave you in the liturgy, that's explaining it. So just experience it. It's very postmodern. I know, I know that rubs people the wrong way. But that's what it's all about. Yes, save us. Are you talking about the Lutheran Church? Well, I mean, I, <laughs> no, I, 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 uh, yeah. I mean, anytime you say that, any, not just saying you're right and you're wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, there are distinctions. There are distinctions all over the place, and those are certainly examples of distinctions. Um, some distinctions are more helpful than others. Some are necessary, but that's not what James is talking about here. James isn't saying. Uh, you know, you have contemporary worship and we don't, therefore, you're on the margins. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you're not being very nice to your brother who's in need. That plays itself out in different contexts, like church bodies. But uh, I, here, here's, here, would be my, here would be my piece of advice. Let's look here before we look there. We've got we to gotta clean this up before you can ever hope of cleaning something else up. And that's what James is doing. The congregation is in shambles. 
you know. People walk in and they're wearing gold and you say, come sit by me. And you've got people who are poor and you say, you be my footstool. That's different than saying, that's different than having a theological doctrinal discussion. Anything else? Well, okay, here we go. Closing the Lord's Prayer, utterly Eucharistic. It'll push us out, out towards the next best thing. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you very much.